Evening. Luke chapter 22, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come tonight to chapter 22 of the Gospel according to Luke. As we come into this place now, we are uh, heading into, as we move forward in this chapter, into the final uh, night of Jesus' life uh, uh, before, uh, before the cross, and that gives us the context of how close we are to those events. And Luke tells us in verse 1, now the feast of uh, unleavened bread drew near, which is called uh, Passover. And so the timing of these events was at the time of uh, the feast of Passover of the Jews in Jerusalem, also the feast of uh, unleavened bread. The feast of Passover was, uh, is the Jewish feast that was a celebration of God's redemption of the Jewish people from their, their physical bondage uh, in Egypt. And as a part of that redemption, there was the slaying of the lamb and the blood of the lamb being applied to the doorposts and lentil of each of the homes of uh, the children of Israel in the symbol of a cross. And uh, all of it a picture of the fact that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins in order to redeem us from a greater bondage, and that is the bondage of uh, sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was associated and is associated with the Passover in that it, was, uh, it came upon the heels of the Passover. The Passover would be uh, experienced and celebrated uh, for, uh, on one particular day, and then the next seven days were known as the Feast of unleavened bread, where all leaven was to be removed from the home uh, of any uh, Jewish person and uh, for that period of time. And uh, the Jews have an interesting way of dealing with that today uh, in, in uh, marking this feast rather than going into their homes and clearing out all of the leaven, uh, which can be quite a work. Um, they'll just book themselves into a hotel in Israel. Uh, that is kosher, and then they take care of it all for them. But there's the removal of the leaven, and leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. And so uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread sp uh, spoke to, it prefigured the sinlessness of Christ, but it also speaks to the fact that once we become saved, uh, Jesus becomes our Passover lamb, then immediately after that salvation experience, our lives are to become uh, lives that become sanctified by God, the removal of sin and leaven uh, from our lives. And so the two of them coming together for that, uh, that particular uh, imagery uh, uh, of, uh, of, of both of them and the spiritual imagery related to Jesus. You know, they... Um, they, the Jewish religious leaders are very, very uh, threatened, of course, by, uh, by Jesus and the threatened by His um, ever-increasing uh, popularity that was happening uh, in His life. They recognized Him to be a very legitimate threat to, his, uh, to their power and uh, to their money-making operation that they had turned Judaism uh, into. And so, 
they threatened by that, they realized that we can't allow this man uh, to live any longer or much longer as we see in verse 2, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him for they feared the people. So they recognize the threat that he is, and they recognize his threat to be so great that now they're going to uh, work uh, very hard. They'd been all along for a number of months now trying to accomplish his death. Now they attempt to do it now in earnest. They do not want another Passover to come by or another Feast of the Jews to come by. They want him gone now. And what they don't realize in what they are doing here is they are uh, simply fulfilling the Word of God related to Jesus as the Messiah. They're not in control of this situation at all, except that they're going to be, uh, what they're going to do in the situation is going to cause Jesus here, in some sense, play a part in it, not cause, that'd be too strong of a word, but play a part in Jesus being crucified on the day of the Passover in the fulfillment of, uh, of the feast. And so uh, th- this is what they're in the middle of and uh, the timing of, of all of it uh, just exactly as God had intended it to be. Now, the, we're told here in verse 2 that the Jewish religious establishment, they sought to kill Jesus, and, and, uh, but they didn't fear much. But one thing they did fear, and this gives you a sense for the the degree of popularity that Jesus had among the common people. They feared that if they did anything to Jesus, it could be traced back to them. Especially if it could be traced back to the fact that they killed Him and got Him out of the way, uh, out of uh, greed and a love for money, that the common people who heard Jesus gladly it would create uh, too big of a ruckus for them. And so, as, as, you, as we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the way through it, we see two tracks that are running, two threads that are running all the way through the Gospels. And the two threads are the hostility of the Jewish religious leaders to Jesus and then His popularity among the people. And you don't find very much in between. You find those two uh, dramatic tracks that that make their way through the account. And now here at this point where Jesus is just about to go to the cross, there's there's going to be a collision of those two tracks now. They realize we cannot express our hostility toward Him and wanting to get rid of Him without now clashing with His popularity among, uh, 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 among the people. So all of this is, is uh, coming uh, to a head in that way. And so, uh, they, it, it, this was what they wanted to do. They didn't know exactly how they could accomplish it. And so in verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, named Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went his way, he conferred uh, with the chief priests and the captains about how he might betray uh, Jesus to uh, them. And so uh, Judas begins his uh, diabolical uh, work here as the betrayer. It's interesting that 
uh, as you would read this, uh, then Satan, the scum of the earth, uh, entered Judas, the scoundrel, the unspeakable, you know, uh, rotten human being. Or there's no, there's no dramatic language here at all to try and make this portrayal uh, more powerful than how the Holy Spirit puts it here. Because you can't make it any more powerful than then Satan entered Judas, named Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He traveled with Jesus day and night for three and a half years. He saw every miracle. He heard every teaching. He had a privilege that only 11 other people have had in human history, though our privilege is greater being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, and the idea is, this is the guy. This betrayal doesn't come from the Romans. It doesn't come from the, the camp of, of the Jewish religious leaders. It's this guy that had that kind of light, that kind of access to Jesus, who had done nothing but good to him, that takes and betrays him. And then if you go take a, a nice long walk with that, that will speak more than any adverbs or adjectives or whatever else could have been added to the pa uh, passage. It is a, a, a terrible, terrible betrayal that uh, occurred here. And so he leaves himself open to uh, demon possession here, and so he is. And the interesting about, thing about Satan is he's really smart in a lot of ways. He's not wise, but he's smart. And uh, he's looking for an opportunity. This is kind of the short-term thing. Get rid of Jesus, and, and somehow this will uh, uh, somehow benefit not only the Jewish religious leaders, but the devil himself. And all he's doing is uh, setting the stage for Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and Satan's uh, complete public defeat uh, at the hands uh, of, uh, of Jesus. And so they were elated uh, by this... this uh, uh, break that they got with this, this terrible betrayal by one of the twelve. Verse 5, they were glad and they agreed to give him money. There was an agreement about how much would be paid. And uh, we know from other Gospels that it was 30 pieces of silver. That was the price that was paid in the Old Testament for if you owned an ox and it gored your neighbor, uh, gored a slave, uh, the price of a gored slave, you had to pay 30 pieces of, of silver in order to, uh, to make a, amends for that. And, that, and that, this is another uh, thing that is just terrible. Uh, after, after the access that he had to Jesus, what he knew about Jesus, and he betrays him for uh, that uh, small, small uh, 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 amount of money, and, uh, and so they agreed on the money, and then he promised to, uh, and, and sought uh, opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. So not just the betrayal, but to fulfill their entire plan of accomplishing it without a crowd 
being uh, around. And so uh, here we have in Judas one of the most powerful pictures of the danger of covetousness, the sin of covetousness in the Scriptures. And it's good for us to be aware of it because we, ha- we live in a culture that nurtures covetousness. It nurtures a discontent mer- materially in our life in order to then uh, manipulate that or to put us into to bondage. And so covetousness is simply the ungodly desire for more. When that becomes the master passion of my life instead of God is to accumulate wealth and to accumulate material things, but, but then it really redlines when the goal of my life is to accumulate wealth and to accumulate material things, and I'm willing to sacrifice the relationship to do that. I'm willing to compromise in order to uh, and reverse things where that becomes the master passion of my life uh, in, instead of God. There's nothing wrong with earning money. There's nothing wrong with possessing material things. But it crosses a line when I am willing to betray God over that. And I make that a higher priority in my life than God. And I come to a place in my life where every time I'm forced to choose between being faithful to God and His Word or compromising His commandments in order to make a few more dollars, I continually find myself uh, choosing the money over what God's commandments tell me to do uh, in, in that situation. It's a very, very dangerous sin. And that sin of covetousness will take a person into as spiritually a dangerous place uh, as the sins of sex, drugs, and uh, rock and roll uh, do. And so if we sit here this evening and we find ourselves compromising, even to the smallest degree, uh, our integrity, our honesty, our Christian witness in the various areas of our life, and uh, out of a love for money, then we're on the path of Judas. It's a path that we either get off of or we travel further down that path. And then, uh, and in traveling further down that path, we can find ourselves doing things and making decisions that we would have never thought we were capable of uh, making or doing, as is the case here uh, with uh, Judas. And so the important thing for us as Christians is not to have a price uh, at all, something that the world could offer us. And we would say, yes, for that amount of money, for that particular thing, for that relationship, I will compromise my relationship with God in order to gain that. We're not to have a price like that in our lives, uh, whether large or small. Um, I remember hearing many, many years ago of a man who propositioned a woman and said, uh, would you go to bed with me for a million dollars? And she said, yes. And he said, will you go to bed with me for ten dollars? And she said, what do you think I am, a harlot? And he said, we've already determined that. Now we're negotiating. And I know that's a little graphic for church sometimes, but it has helped me through the years to look at Uh, that area of a price. Doesn't matter whether it's like, okay, wow, it was a million dollars. Who could turn their back on it or whatever it is? It still means I have a price, and it still makes it uh, spiritual 
uh, harlotry. Paul said concerning his own life and how he viewed it, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. And so as we look at our lives here tonight and to just allow this to search our lives, again, we have a very low view or or, uh, we minimize the importance of covetousness and it is it is so dangerous and to allow this time in looking at Judas here to cut it out of our lives as is is necessary and uh, then Jesus uh, partakes of of the celebration of the Passover feast with his disciples and uh, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover uh, for us that we may eat. Jesus wants to partake of it with the disciples. And so they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? They needed instructions, and Jesus gave the instructions. Behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you, and he's going to be carrying a pitcher of water, and follow him to the house in which he enters. You say, well, I mean, how many men are carrying a pitcher of water on their head? I'm not going to differentiate him from everyone else. Women carried water in that culture. It would have been very unusual for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water uh, on his head. So this would have been a distinctive uh, giveaway for this is the guy that you follow. And so follow him into the house in which he enters, and then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my uh, disciples? And so Jesus had probably prearranged this room. You're certainly not going to get a good-sized room in the city of Jerusalem, which probably tripled in size during the Feast of, of Passover, people, Jews coming from all over the world uh, three hours before uh, you're going to partake of the Passover. So prearranged, and, and so the, uh, the teacher, the master, he, he comes and, and asks where, uh, where can he eat the Passover with his disciples. And then he's going to show you a large furnished upper room and there make all of that uh, ready. And so they obeyed his instructions. They went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared uh, the, the Passover. And, uh, and again, here is Jesus now in verse 14 begins the description of his final Passover meal uh, with them. And when the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him. So Judas is presently um, in his sullied state. He is, he is present with the other eleven and Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, he said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus declares that to them that he fervently desired to eat this Passover meal with them before his uh, suffering. And, uh, and, and so the Passover meal uh, was special, this particular one on the night before the cross, in the sense that 
the entire focus of it, the ultimate meaning, meaning of the Feast of, of uh, Passover would go from it, its supreme meaning in human history uh, to be identified by the redemption of the Jewish people from the bondage of Egypt to now its supreme identity would be Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins in order to uh, provide, as I said, the greater redemption of our lives out of the kingdom of darkness and out of the bondage of sin. And so when Jesus says to them, I have longed uh, there, uh, it's with the idea that he knows on the very next day that, that he would fulfill the feast in his death for the redemption of mankind concerning sin. And the feast will no longer be known supremely related to that Old Testament event, but now God's deliverance of, of mankind from the bondage of sin through His uh, Son. And again, all of this Jesus' death uh, coinciding with the, the feast of Passover as, as God had in, intended all of that to be, all of it uh, a picture of Him. So when He says, uh, this, uh, this Passover, this was something. Right around the corner, the fulfillment of this is going to happen uh, the, the very next day. You notice in verse 16 he says, for I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And for is a, a reason word. In other words, his death, burial, and resurrection, fulfillment of, of the feast is, and, and uh, in its ultimate uh, form and, uh, and, and now taking on the, the ultimate meaning that God had intended for it uh, all along. And so he took the cup and he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine uh, until the kingdom of God comes. Now, as a part of the, uh, the celebration of uh, a Passover meal, there's several cups of wine that are used in the course of that meal. We're not told which one of the several uh, that is involved here, only that... Uh, that uh, uh, this occurred, and, and they, they drank from the same cup, uh, symbolizing their, their fellowship with, uh, with one another. And so, life as they had known it now for three and a half years, it is all coming to an end on, on uh, that night. And, uh, and, and so, Jesus speaks about His death, burial, and resurrection, and, and the fact that He wouldn't drink of the vine uh, fruit of the vine until his millennial kingdom following his uh, second coming. And so uh, Luke's description of the Passover meal ends there with verse 18. And then Jesus now institutes in verse 19 uh, a, something new uh, into human history, and that is uh, he institutes now the Lord's Supper. And so, here again, all of it in the context of his sacrifice and the context of the feast of Passover. And he took bread, and uh, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, really a symbol of his body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup after supper, uh, saying, this cup, a cup of wine, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper uh, here. 
And the Lord's Supper is intended uh, to accomplish and remind us of, uh, of uh, several things as Christians. It's something that each, as Christians we are to practice it and uh, partake of it on a regular basis. For us, um, it is, after the, is a part of the second Sunday evening service of, of each month. But the Lord's Supper is, as Jesus puts it here, do this in remembrance of me. It is intended to be a remembrance of Him. It is possible for a church to be around for a long enough time or any church even beginning uh, for Jesus to get lost in all of it or not even be preeminent uh, in, in the church at all. And sometimes you can go into a church, I've done it a number of times and walked out and uh, said, where was Jesus in uh, any of that? I met the, the, I met the, uh, the, the Boy Scout troop. Uh, I learned about all the events that are going to be happening uh, this week, but nobody pointed me to Jesus in this place. And I'm talking about when, I, when I'm at the end of my rope in my life, and I'm, I'm looking to commit my life to the Lord. And ultimately, I go into a Calvary Chapel and somebody points me to Jesus on that. And I'm not saying we're the only people that do that, but it did happen there for me. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> excuse me. So as we, as we partook of the Lord's Supper last week in our water baptism time, it is the Lord's Supper, one of the things about it is the way of keeping the main thing, the main thing, and Jesus is the main thing uh, in, in the church. Christian service is not, uh, having, uh, uh, being a church is not, it is our personal relationship with uh, Him. And so do this in remembrance of me, the reminder that this is all about a relationship with me. If, if you think that I overstate the fact that there can be uh, a church or churches where Jesus is completely lost in, just remember his uh, seventh of his seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation when he knocks on the door at the church of Laodicea and he is on the outside knocking to try and get in, but the church is so filled with I am, I am, I am. It's so man-centered that he's on the outside knocking to get in, and they don't have the slightest idea there's anything wrong with that picture. Churches become about the worship of them, the exaltation of them. It's become like everything else in the church. And, and exaltation of mankind, and an expression of ourselves. And so it can happen. And there's strong pressure on all churches to do that in this culture, in, in this hour. And so Jesus can get lost in Christianity. And so the Lord's Supper helps us not to do that. The Lord's Supper is also a retrospect. It's a time when we look back. And uh, we would certainly probably, none of us, take uh, the, uh, the symbol of His body and of His blood without our mind going to the greatness of the sacrifice that was made on the cross, the price that He paid on that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And so we look back and, and it produces gratitude and awe in us over what it is that, that He has done for us. But it's also a time of looking back on our own salvation story and to just remember the who, what, where, when, why, and how of each of our salvation story, where we were, how He did it, how He opened up our eyes, how we hit rock bottom, or how we hit the mountaintop. 
and, and then how He uh, saved us, and then remembering that related to our lives as well. The Lord's Supper is a time of introspection. It is a time, so uh, retrospect, introspect, and then prospect. And so it's introspection, as we saw again last Sunday evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we examine our lives for sin or partaking, uh, holding on to sins willfully, deliberately, and, uh, and in light of the fact that He died not only to forgive me of my sins, but to free me from my sins and to look and say, I don't want to maintain anything continuing on in my life uh, in light of the sacrifice that was paid, not only for my salvation, but my sanctification, and so I turn from it. And then the, uh, the Lord's Supper is a prospect. Jesus said, uh, you know, do this until I come elsewhere in, in a, the record of this. And it's that constant reminder that He's coming, and uh, He is uh, going to return and, and uh, bring human history to His uh, his appointed end, and we can't hear that enough. Worship team led us in it. a song this morning as they opened everything up soon and very soon. We're going to see the King. It never does my heart uh, anything but good to be reminded of that. And I use the Lord's Prayer as, a, as a, one of the means of a model for my daily devotional time. And uh, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every day in that prayer, there's the reminder, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming, and it accomplishes something uh, good in us. And the reminder uh, is a lo in the Lord's Supper is uh, it, it does that same uh, very, very important thing where we take what we're in the middle of, all of the urgency of life, all of the difficulty of life, and then now we look at it in the light of the eternal perspective. What is this going to look like in eternity? Okay, this is, my life is just a vapor. Glory is coming. He is coming. It helps me to keep perspective uh, related to the difficulties of life. And then as Jesus brings out in verse 20, it is a, a time to remind us that this new covenant uh, that we have, this new agreement kind of relationship with God is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, and that is, uh, as he says, is shed for you, and, and that is the sacrifice of his life for us. And, and you notice that he, he doesn't say, this cup is the, the, this cup and all of your human effort uh, is the new covenant. Uh, this cup and all of your best works is the new covenant in my blood. I'm dying on the cross uh, in order to provide a new covenant, a new way of relating and having a relationship with God, and it's going to be based upon my shed blood on the cross, my sacrifice, and then the best that you can do. There's nothing like that here. It is based solely on Jesus' sacrifice. And because this relationship that we have with God is based solely upon the sacrifice that Jesus has made, and that sacrifice becoming ours because we have trusted in Him as our Savior, that salvation is a secure salvation. Um, if this said, uh, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, and um, you being good for five minutes, it wouldn't be a sure salvation. I mean, if we're loaded into this at all, now the salvation is in play. And God knew better than to make our salvation 
uh, be in play on the basis of anything that we could add to it. We cannot add to it. We receive it into our lives. And then you say, well, where does holiness come from? Isn't going to, everybody just going to take advantage of that? No. Holiness comes from being grateful for what He's done and now wanting to live the life that He calls us to because of what He's done for us. So no one should ever doubt their, their uh, as a Christian, we shouldn't doubt our salvation. And most often when I talk with people that doubt their salvation, it's because they're working now something of their works. I did this or I didn't do that, or I did this for a few days or a few weeks, or I backslid into this, and now. but that's not the covenant. That's not the covenant. In the Old Testament uh, times, if you were going to make a covenant with another person, what would happen is they would take a sacrifice, they would cut, say, the sheep or the goat in half, they would lay either half uh, on the ground on either side, and then both parties that were making the agreement would walk in between the two halves of the animals. That's, that's how a covenant uh, was made, and they would make kind of a figure eight on it. But you might remember in, I think it's Genesis 15, where God makes his covenant with Abraham. He tells Abraham, take these particular animals, cut them in half, make them a sacrifice. Then he caused a deep sleep to come upon uh, uh, Abraham, and then God, is, as, as a torch, walks between those animals, and Abraham doesn't do it. Only God does it. And God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to keep this promise to you and to your descendants, and it is based totally upon my faithfulness, totally upon me, and it has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. And aren't you glad when you read the Old Testament? When you read Jeremiah, and you read Ezekiel, and you read Isaiah, and you read the historical books, naughty, 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 the children of Israel. And yet His promises are true toward them, because they're based upon His promise to Abraham and to them. And the same thing is true of us. And to realize how one-sided this covenant is, how one-sided He has made this relationship, that we have this relationship solely because of His sacrifice and not anything else, and we simply receive that into our lives, and then the life of holiness now comes out of a response to His grace in our lives, which we look at and say, I just can't believe why you would love someone like me. And uh, that should always leave us in awe. And so this is, uh, this is what is communicated um, in, in the Lord's Supper and, uh, and uh, as uh, Jesus institutes that and what it was intended to communicate to them, what it's intended to communicate uh, to us as well. And then as we go into verse uh, 21, uh, Jesus has them all in this room, and they haven't partaken of the Lord's Supper yet. So they're all in this upper room. They're celebrating the, fast, uh, uh, the Passover feast, Judas is still in the room. We know that based upon we know that based upon what Jesus is about to say here, that Judas ends up exiting the room before they partake of the Lord's Supper. But as they're all there in this room, <clears throat> Jesus 
<clears throat> I mean, stunningly, if you sat there in the room, put yourself in the place of the eleven. And Jesus says, but behold, the hand of my betrayer. What? The hand of your betrayer? What? One of us is going to betray you? I mean, this would hit him like a ton of bricks. And not only is there a betrayer, but the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. He's right here. He's among the twelve. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined by means of being betrayed by a friend, as the Old Testament Scriptures said would be the case, as Judas fulfilled it. It's all going to happen as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so here you have this beautiful picture of God's sovereignty, and, and human responsibility all bound up. God was going to rule and overrule every aspect of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But the fact that He overruled it to make it serve His purposes did not make Judas any less responsible for the decision that he had made. And the same thing then is true related to salvation. God knows who, is, uh, who He is going to believe in Him. He knows who He has chosen to be saved because He chooses, as Paul brings out in Romans chapter 8, He chooses out of His foreknowledge. He knows who is going to receive Him. He chooses out of that, that foreknowledge. And, uh, and, but everyone is still responsible for the relation, the, the, has the opportunity to choose, and then is responsible for, uh, for that choice. And so Jesus was, uh, among other things here, now communicating to Judas, I'm on to you. I'm on to you. You did it all in secret, all in private. You went down all the alleys, made sure nobody saw you. Isn't that one of the twelve? They got the wanted posters up at the temple. And you made sure nobody knew what you'd done. And I know exactly what you're doing. And then he, they began to question among themselves which of them was, it was who would do this thing. I've always liked that picture in the Scriptures. It's such a healthy distrust of self. They didn't say, I could never do that. You know, Peter will do a little bit of that in a different context in a few minutes here. But, but there was, uh, they, they looked at it and so mortified by it, and yet they recognized the capacity within them to do something uh, that horrible, and they're wondering, am I going to be the one that betrays him uh, uh, here? And, and that's, a, that's a good uh, distrust of self uh, to have. Uh, clearly, Judas was very, very clever in hiding all of this because uh, nobody uh, knew it was him. They didn't say, uh, boy, why did Judas leave so quick? You know, I always thought he was kind of shifty. You know how that happens after the fact. Yeah, I know. I thought the same thing. Well, they, they didn't, he'd kept it all completely uh, secret. They didn't, and they didn't look, it's Judas, I knew it was Judas. We've been talking about that on our bunk beds the night before. And now when the, in this time as the cross is coming so near, 
they renew their argument over which one of them should be the greatest. I mean, is God gracious or, or what? Not just concerning them, but concerning us. He has just told them um, in verse 15, talking about the partaking of the Passover with them before I suffer. And he's been telling them all along that he's going to uh, be killed, he's going to be brutally treated in, in Jerusalem, and they still don't get it. And so there was a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. Now, uh, they can be very, very glad that this took place somewhere in about uh, 32, 33 A.D. Because if they did it today, somebody would have filmed it. And, uh, and it would be like uh, uh, the ugliest thing, you know, to have. And God, by His Holy Spirit, He puts it in here, but He's so discreet about it. So they, they're arguing, dispute. I mean, you just have to, again, we've seen it before, but the, the picture, they are arguing with one another over who is the greatest at this time in Jesus' life and ministry. Let me just ask you a question. Don't shout out. When is the last time you had a conversation with someone else where you argued with them that you were greater than them? I hope it's been a long time, like maybe seventh grade. So, I mean, these are grown men, and, and clearly they, they believe that Jesus is going to do something dramatic here. They still believe, based upon their indoctrination growing up, that He is going to establish an earthly kingdom, and so now they're fighting for uh, that uh, that position, disputing for it. And then Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. He tells the disciples, what you are doing here is you're operating the way that the world operates. But, notice in verse 26, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you won't even enter into a conversation like this. He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, that is the least, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, who, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as the one who serves? So he tells him, you want greatness? You're not going to come to... Uh, uh, and you commend them for desiring to be great in the kingdom of God, however carnal the, the desire is. I mean, how many people uh, know God and are Christians and all of this, and they never give a thought for uh, uh, doing anything great for God or accomplishing anything great for God in, in long blocks of their life? You've got to give them at least credit for that. However selfish and tainted it was, they at least had that. But he said, you're operating like the world. And, and in the world, in the Gentile world, power, a person's power is determined by how many people they are over. So you see the, the, the classic pyramid structure. 
you got all these people down here, and the person that's on the top, they have the most power by virtue of, of that position. And because of their power, they can force everyone below them in terms of authority, they can force them to do what they want them to do. And Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom operates. And I'll give you a reason why it, doesn't, it can't operate that way. Because God is after people's hearts. That's what He wants. You can have a boss in a corporation who can get the submission of everyone who is under him or her, and they will get the submission, but they will never get that person's heart. God doesn't want submission without the heart. And so so He is after the heart. And people only give their heart to someone or to something, to a person that they trust. And they won't trust power. They won't trust us forcing them by virtue of a title or some kind of greatness to do something. We, uh, we will trust a person who is consistently operating for our benefit and operating for our good. Greatest definition of, of servanthood is, uh, is to do what's best for the other person. And that's who you trust. And Jesus is saying, greatness in this kingdom gets accomplished that way. And it is by becoming servants in people's lives. That's how you win a person's heart. Not by the church joining all of the power structures and corporate models for the church and government models for the church. It won't work. You'll never get a person's heart uh, that way. Because there's a difference between power and, and authority. And power is, I have the power to force you on some level in, into submission on some level related to these things. But uh, authority is something entirely different. Influence is something entirely different. People choose to make us and give us a position of authority in their life or a position of influence in, uh, in their lives when they feel safe with us. This person's never going to do me wrong. This person is always looking out for me. And so that's the model for winning people's hearts, which is what God wants to do. So we see the power model all around us all the time. It's how the the world operates around us and the importance of realizing His kingdom operates in a completely different way. And this is important for us to recognize as Christians in a uh, what I would call a post-Christian America. So you go back to the 1970s or the 60s or the 50s or the 40s, the United States of America is very, very strongly uh, uh, dominated by uh, Christianity. Uh, even if people weren't Christians, they accepted that the, the moral standard of, of Christianity as the right thing within the culture. 
And so easy for us at every election that would come out, um, every election would occur and to come out in sufficient numbers to just dominate every, uh, every election. And then now what do we notice? It's a liability to be a Christian and run for office today. So everything is flipped. And so we look and we say, and, and we look and we say, well, we've lost all of our power. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with being involved in politics and those kind of things, but we engage it as a servant. But we look at it and we think, we've lost all of our power. We don't have the numbers, the number of born-again Christians in the United States, it only makes up this percentage, and we'll never win an election again. Like our influence depends or ever depended upon that. It doesn't. It always has advanced on the basis of servanthood and people willingly giving us a place of influence in their lives by virtue of feeling safe with us. And, and it is servanthood that, that causes them to, to do that. And so, and, and to look at that and to carry it into other parts of our lives as well, uh, so often, you know, within a marriage or even in rearing children or all these different kinds of, of relationships that we have and the recognition, it's not just national, it's not just international, but it has to do with individual relationships within our lives. And so the husband that looks and says, you know, you have to submit to me. I got it right here in black and white. And I had a, somebody come in and paint it on the wall in every room in the house. And there's, there's truth related to that comment. But you can, you can bang away at that all you want. But if I'm not a servant to my wife, she's never going to trust me. She'll get, she may give me uh, some, an outward whatever on things. But, it, but in terms of giving me a position of influence, not going to happen. She'll never give me her heart that way. But it's, it's true in all relationships. And, and this is the way that all of these things advance. I have to be careful to say here, related to this, when we talk about um, you know, servanthood and, and all. Serving other people doesn't mean saying yes to everything they want. Uh, so there are proverbs in the Bible that talk about raising a child that way. Um, if you raise a child that way, you'll probably move to another country to get away from them by the time they're grown up. It's a miserable kind of person that gets produced. It's not the loving thing to do. And so, so uh, again, the servant does what is best for the other person. And sometimes that's very, very hard. And, it's, and, and so there's the hard thing that has to be said, the hard thing that has to be done, but there's the recognition it was done for the best of, of, of the other uh, person. And so Jesus says, you want, uh, you're striving after greatness. That's great for that, for the kingdom of God. But this is how uh, it, is, it is achieved. And, and to do this as he closes out verse 27, it is to be like him, in, uh, uh, to live like him. Do, you, do any of us follow Jesus uh, because he put us in a headlock and then threatened to give us the old Danish knuckle rub on our head until we said uncle and surrendered uh, to him. Now we saw a servant. We saw the Son of God, the very Son of God, and God the Son give himself, become a servant in order to save and to win 
uh, me. And so we've already experienced the power of it in our own life spiritually, in our relationship with Him. And Jesus said, and He continues in verse 28, because the idea is they're, uh, they're arguing, they're, they're concerned about their greatness, they're concerned about uh, their future. And uh, Jesus then uh, said uh, to them, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. He expresses His appreciation to them for uh, sticking with Him through, uh, through the three and a half years, but especially the final year of His public ministry, which was a year of opposition. So He said, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. It meant something to Him. It meant something to Him. And when you and I stick with Him, no matter how the world is treating Him, how He's blasphemed, how He's misrepresented, how whatever those things are, and we continue to publicly identify with Him, in, in, in spite of that, He notices it. And He appreciates it. And it means something to Him. And so He said, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Of the eleven uh, apostles that are still with him in the, that room, ten of the eleven will die martyrs' deaths, according to church history. Only uh, John will uh, uh, apparently uh, live and, and die an, a natural death. And so Jesus is saying, you may not receive any reward for all that you do for me and the life that I'm calling you to live in this life. But if you don't, in, in, in terms of uh, the ways that you're thinking about, uh, to realize that, uh, that this will be something that will be in your future. And of course, the, the twelve, when Jesus comes back at His second coming, establishes the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, it is the apostles who will uh, sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, even as we will have a part as Christians in, in Jesus ruling and reigning over the earth for that thousand years. So he's, he's telling them, you, you just be the servant that I call you to be, and eternity will take care of itself. But he gives them a little bit of a glimpse at uh, what's on the other side of, of it for them far greater. I mean, what are they arguing for? What, what are their visions of the kingdom of God? What are their ideas? Okay, whoever's the greatest of us twelve, and whatever that conjured up in their minds, it couldn't be greater than ruling with Jesus in the, in the thousand-year reign of Christ and to be judging and ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, we can entrust to God uh, how he's going to reward what we do in, in uh, this life. And so we'll stop there tonight because uh, it, uh, it gets pretty intense here with um, the next step of things related to Peter and, and uh, going forward. So um, let's stand together and uh, we'll close in prayer and have the worship team close us in a song. If you're with us this evening and you are not yet a Christian, we'll be up in front after the service, and we'd love to answer your questions and pray with you tonight. 
to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, for all of us in this room, if you need prayer for anything that's happening in your life this evening, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Father, thank you so much for this glimpse of our Savior and this wisdom of your Word that has been poured into our hearts and our minds and into our spirit and into our relationship with you. And as is the case when we read the volume of the book, Lord, and even these verses that we've looked at tonight, we stand in awe of our Savior. We stand in awe of your plan of salvation. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, uh, Jesus, for overwhelming our past, our present, our future. And thank you for making this covenant so one-sided that we can be at peace concerning our salvation and concentrate on loving you and serving others. And we thank you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.